Well, good morning again. We are continuing our series called Love Is. If you want to turn to James chapter 2, we're going to be there in just a minute. But this morning, we're going to think about a very simple thing that I think is actually more difficult for us to live out than we might like to admit, that love doesn't show favoritism. Several years ago, I was in Malibu with uh, my family and we were at Malibu Yogurt. If you've ever been to Malibu, that's a, a popular spot. And while we were there, I saw uh, Bill Simmons, who used to write for ESPN.com and now has started The Ringer. If you're a sports fan, you might be familiar uh, with him. If uh, you aren't a sports fan, you probably have no idea who that is. And I have to tell you that I'm somebody who grew up in Los Angeles, so I take pride in not making a big deal when I see a celebrity because I don't really want to bother them. And I've seen real celebrities, not just Bill Simmons. I've seen Britney Spears. I've seen Harrison Ford. And I thought, I don't want to go bug that person. They're with their family right now. It's just, it's not that big of a deal. I don't want to go over and pester that person. And so I did what I typically would do if I saw a celebrity. I came back and sat with my family. And I said to my brother, who was also a big fan, there's Bill Simmons over there. And my mom was with us, and she said, yeah, who's, who's that? And I explained, you know, he's a writer for ESPN.com. He's the guy wearing the red over there. And my mom just starts walking over to him. And apparently, she walked over to Bill Simmons and said, my sons are huge fans of yours, and they really want to take a picture with you. And I don't know what he was expecting to see as he turned around to see, like, the sons. Is it, you know, an 11-year-old or a 14-year-old? And so he turns to look at the sons that wanted a picture, and my brother had bolted to the car. My wife of about a year had bolted to the car. Thanks a lot for that. I was left standing there alone, and after Bill Simmons hears, my sons want a picture with you, it's just this 28-year-old guy standing awkwardly, like, uh, I don't know what to do. He was very gracious, and he came over and took a picture with me, but it ended up being the worst picture in human history. Here it is right here. This is the worst picture that could possibly have been taken. It was taken by my mother, the whole experience, hashtag thanks mom for this disaster, because it is a terrible, terrible picture and a very, very awkward experience. We know what it is to see somebody, and perhaps you, like me, aren't somebody who is super starstruck and doesn't necessarily want to let on that you think this person is important. We know what it is to see somebody, though, and have that impulse in us, like, yeah, you know, I might like a picture with him or her. And how is it that we figure out who it is that's important? How do we figure out who we want to show some special kind of loyalty to? And if we're honest, I think we're worse at this than we might think. It's important for us to let Jesus shape this in us. And it's something we have to constantly lean into. James, who is the brother of Jesus, and I would argue one of the things that is better proof of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God than almost anything, because he is the brother of Jesus. And in the Gospels, at first, his family doesn't believe in who he is, but James eventually becomes converted and is one of the great New Testament um, leaders and early Christian leaders in the church. And he writes a book called James, where he gives very practical advice. I think it's like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's telling us very practical things. This is what it looks like to live in community. And James is one of the best proofs of Jesus' existence as the Son of God, because what would your brother have to do for you to think he was the Son of God? 
And at first you weren't convinced, and then you came around. I think about one thing my brother would have done is stand with me for that picture and not run to the car. But for you, you have probably other examples of like where your brother left you hanging or your sister left you hanging to, to prove like, oh, this is the son of God. This is unbelievable. But James becomes convinced and he writes this very practical book addressing what it looks like to live in Christian community. And he addresses stuff that I think, if we're honest, is, is sometimes part of our Christian communities that we don't necessarily like to talk about it very much. Think about if you were to write a book to somebody and say, these are the most important things that you should do or think about as a Christian. What is it that would be on your list? There's a lot of things that come to mind that would be important. And I got to be honest, if I was to write that book, I don't think favoritism would be one of the first things that I would address. And partly that's because I think I can be pretty comfortable with picking favorites. And James, in James chapter 2, really lays into this for a bit. So go ahead. It's a long passage. I like to read from a Bible, and you can follow along on the screen below or grab a Bible or an app of your own. James says in James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. Just full stop right there. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, which I have to say, that's just horrible. <laughs> Someone comes to your church for the first time, sit by my feet. And there's a reason why Jesus, is, Jesus washing his disciples' feet is unbelievable because at that time you wore sandals and they were very smelly and very dirty. So if somebody comes into your church, you're like, hey, come sit by my smelly feet. That is just a disaster. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I think one of the reasons why it's easy for us to fall into this mindset of showing favoritism is we can start to believe that we know who can teach us stuff and who can't. But James says that it is often the things that we would at first perhaps think aren't all that important or all that, uh, that significant that can teach us so much. There's a, a pastor who says, I'm really good at love until other people show up. And it's so true. We need to be people who 
recognize that it is important for us to not look at outward appearance or the things that we sometimes value. And what's so great about this passage is this is something that we all, I would say, collectively take for granted and want to live in a world like this. We want to live in a world where a a homeless person is not shown any less value than someone who is very wealthy. That is a Christian idea. That's an idea that you got from Jesus, and it's one that you got from James. Because in that society, things were very structured, and you only hung out with people who were very much like you. But James is is saying, as he's writing to the early church, you have to break down those walls. And if you aren't doing it, then you probably aren't doing church. If you aren't gathered with people who are different than you, then I would argue that what you're doing isn't practicing New Testament Christianity. And I know that sometimes we can think that the church is backwards on this, and I would agree with you at times that the church has not done a good job. But then we look to other parts of the world and say, well, yeah, think about like progressive Hollywood society. And how well is Hollywood treating women? How well are some of these places in our society treating our friends of color? Sometimes the church is backwards on that, certainly. But I don't think there's a space in our society where you can point to and say, oh, it's going really well over there. And the church needs to constantly remember this is who we are called to be. This isn't just a good idea. Because if we're honest, in all societies and cultures, there's these lists that aren't necessarily written out that define who has value and who doesn't. Those lists still have race on them, of course. Those lists have gender. If you're too young or too old in American society, I would say you don't have as much value at times because of how we see things. James says when somebody shows up to your gathering, if you notice some things about them that you find appealing and you say, hey, come sit in this night seat next to me. Or if you see somebody that shows up and you don't necessarily find them all that appealing, you say, come here and sit at my feet, then you're doing it wrong. James starts this passage by calling Jesus our glorious Lord Jesus. And the word glory from the Hebrew kavod simply means weight. So what this passage is saying is, from the very beginning, may we weigh people and give them their value and their worth, not off these lists that we just even subconsciously perhaps have, because of who God says they are. May we see them as weighty and valuable as people because of who Jesus says they are. Jesus is our heaviness. There's a woman named Henrietta Mears who is known as the mother of modern children's ministry. When I grew up in church, we would generally have to just sit through the sermon. We had a Bible class before it, but then we would sit through the sermon, and it 
definitely didn't leave the greatest taste in my mouth about church because I would sit there for this thing that was very long and somewhat monotonous and didn't seem to have all that much value for me. And Henrietta Mir, she was in Northern California, and she identified this and wanted to create some space uh, for kids. And her model was, I think, the most effective way, which you start with some time all together as a family, but then the kids get to go have a break. Like we have Bible adventures when we have our times together, and it's a time where they learn something that is designed for them because my sermons aren't always that effective preaching to five-year-olds, and there's much better ways um, for that to happen. So Henrietta Mears is called the mother of modern children's ministry because she thought of this system and created a way where kids could feel like they were part, they had something really significant to take home with them. And she said this about her work. She said, I try to imagine that every child has a sign on them that says, please make me feel important. And I would say that all of us have those signs all the time. Now, maybe you don't actually literally wear one. You, you probably shouldn't, but we all are showing up to places, whether we are kids or adults, whether we're young or old, whether we're black or white, where we show up to spaces and we say, am I important here? Am I valued? Have they given a seat for me? Or am I sitting by someone's feet? We all want to be valued and shown love. And again, this is James, the brother of Jesus, writing to the early church. And favoritism, in my mind, wouldn't be one of the first things that I mentioned. But he goes on this, this long talk about favoritism because it's absolutely important. And do you notice what he ends up comparing favoritism to? He says that if you pretend that you are, are without sin, like just be honest with yourself, you do at times show favoritism. And he mentions adultery and murder. I think those are the, the two sins that we as Christians at times love to go to and think, well, at least I haven't done that. And he says that if you aren't careful about favoritism, all sin is the same in God's eyes. And you are a lawbreaker if you are allowing that sinful behavior to be part of your heart and life, just like someone who commits murder or adultery. James says the same things that we have outside to give value and worth to people, those can so easily come into the church. And you must Guard your heart against it. In the book of Romans, Paul says this, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's four words in there that I think Christians struggle with more than any. There is no difference. And you can put different words in there for Jew and Gentile. But there is no difference. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is 
no difference. Grace levels the playing field because we all need it. We all fall short. We need to be a place that admits that and practices that and then seeks the love of God together that we would see people as Jesus sees us and then as his brother encourages us that you don't, when you see somebody, have a different set of rules for them because we all fall short. And church, there is no difference. I think that's hard for us to take because some of us have been at this Christian thing for a while. And it's this insidious thing that comes into us that we think because I've been serving for all this time and I've been doing all this stuff and I've been participating in some really good things that I'm a little bit better. Like, let's be honest, God, I'm, I'm a little bit further along the line than that person who just showed up. James says you have to guard yourself against it. There is no difference. One of the most powerful sermons that Jesus gives is in Luke chapter 15. And at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, it tells us who the crowd is that he's preaching to. Tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And I always love to notice that the tax collectors are even differentiated from the sinners. Even the sinners are like, no, I don't want to be part of that group. And so there's this really group, strange group of people. So Luke chapter 15 is telling us, like, this is honestly, hopefully, how your church would look. That it's some people who are following God, and hopefully they're not pharisaical, but some people who are following God, and then there's some people who aren't following God. And so Jesus is speaking to this very diverse group of people. And he delivers a really powerful message. He starts by talking about a lost sheep. That if you're a shepherd and if you're actually a good shepherd, if you lose a sheep, you're going to do whatever it takes to go find one, even if it's one out of a hundred. And if you're somebody who has an extensive coin collection and you lose one of those coins, you will turn the house upside down until you find it. And you can imagine that this is one of those moments that everybody's nodding along with this. The, the sinners are saying, yeah, that's, that's a good object lesson. I think I would probably do that. And those who consider themselves to be very religious, yeah, sure, that, that's, that's really great. And then Jesus tells a story about something that would actually, I think, call both groups to repentance. He tells a story that we call the prodigal son where this son goes to his father and basically says to him, I wish you were dead because that's what it felt like if you said, I want my inheritance uh, right now. That was more true in that culture, but even today, imagine you going to your parents and say, give me my inheritance now. I don't think that would uh, be all that pleasant. Um, but they, the son does this and goes and wastes it uh, extravagantly often in some foreign place. And then he comes back expecting to be like one of his father's servants. And the father puts the family ring on him and says, no, 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 you are part of the family. And the whole huge family has this party. The fattened calf is killed. Everyone's pumped about this except the older brother. The older brother shows up after working in the field and is like, why is Cool and the gang warming up over here? Uh, and he has all of these questions like, what is it that's going? You, you've never even killed anything for me, dad, and now you kill the fattened calf? That's just not fair. So what Jesus does is 
He has a word for God's love to those who are far from God. And then he has a word about God's love to people who think they're close to God. And I wonder at times if we as church people call this story the prodigal son. I've, called, I've seen it called the prodigal son, and I've seen it called the parable of the lost son. I wonder at times if we call it that because it makes us feel a little bit more comfortable. Because really, at the very least, this story needs to be called the parable of the lost sons. And I would argue that the son who stays home and then is angry when his brother comes back. That is unbelievably harmful to the Christian witness in the world. And it can get in all of our hearts. Is there somebody who if they showed up, you would feel like, oh, God, don't welcome him into the party. Why is she here? we can very easily start to think that we're just a little bit more advanced in the kingdom than somebody else. This parable tells us that it's so dangerous. You can be around God. You can even be doing somewhat Christian behaviors for the wrong reasons. And then when you see somebody show up, it's offensive to you. Are you motivated by grace? Do you let love be the place that you live from in your heart? There's a show that's really popular in China about this group. There's 120,000 Chinese millionaires who have moved to Vancouver, Canada in the last 15 years. It's a popular thing to do. It's a place that is very expensive but a desirable place uh, to live. And so there are all of these Chinese millionaires who have gone to that place. And there's a reality show about those people. And the studies that have been done of people who are actually watching that show say that the reason they watch it is they hate watch it because they just despise these people because they have all this money and they complain about dumb stuff. And really a lot of our reality shows are somewhat similar. Like we are not watching this because we have a lot of joy and all this really fills my heart. It's like, I can't believe that person would do that thing. And it's so interesting and awful how hate, you can hate watch something. Why do you do that to yourself? Are you motivated by hatred? Are you motivated by looking at others and looking down on them? That older brother, right as he gets a chance to speak, he says to his father, all these years I've been slaving for you. I can just feel the father's heart break in Luke chapter 15. He thinks, that's what you thought this is? You're always with me. I hope that love changes you after a while. May we learn that it is just as dangerous to live an extravagantly wasteful life where, you know, eventually you could hit rock bottom as it is to be around the things of God, but not acting like God. 
May we see that we need to see all of our conversations and our moments with other people and our relationships through the lens of grace. There's a Christian college called Wheaton College, and they have a class on criminal justice. And the professor who taught that class noticed that there were often very strong disagreements about criminal justice in that class, as I think we are realizing why that would be the case in our world in 2020 right now. And so she decided she's going to take this class in one of the semesters out of the classroom and into her home. And because this was a Christian college, she, at the beginning of each of these classes, offered communion to the people. And many of the people, because it was a Christian college, were Christians, and so they took communion together. And she noticed that dramatically changed the conversations. That it didn't mean that things were any less intense at times. The conversations and the relationships were seen through the lens of love. One of the things that I love about our denomination is that we take communion together every week, and that is something that I hold very dear and think is very important because we need to be reminded of how much we need the grace of God, and then that changes how we see other people. Because favoritism isn't just about that person who's showing up at church for the first time. It's actually that person who you've been in a relationship for a while, and he or she has hurt you. And perhaps fairly, you want to withdraw, and you want to kick them out of the party. But God invites us to come back in over and over again. May we learn to enter into the party, to dance to the rhythm of grace. I found uh, this church sign recently online, which uh, I find to be pretty hilarious. Hopefully you can read it there. There are several parts that are great. Consumerist Church of the Sacred Demographics. And it has different hours of worship, senior gospel hour, contemporary suburban worship, mystic journey, the worship experience, all of these different hours on a Sunday. And the sermon title uh, for that day is God has a wonderful cafeteria plan for your life. And the reason why this is funny is I think it's actually a stinging indictment of the church today. Because we all, if we're not careful, and we can sometimes think of some churches that exist in our city and say, yep, that's the mystic journey experience. <laughs> or that is that. That is that place. Or that church is only for old people. Or that church is only for young people. Or that church is only for black people. Or that church is only for Hispanic people. And we can think about that. And the reality is that this is often how the church is in our world today. And that's not at all who we're called to be. That we are called to be a place where we are built on the love of God, which is always about bringing new people in. And it isn't just about loving a certain demographic. It's about God's work for all people. I've heard it said that some churches should just be honest and put it out on their church sign, that your mission is actually keeping the Jones family happy since 1973. You just have these certain people who have a better or bigger amount of say, or you're only like looking for this certain kind of person. And sadly, I think if that's the way 
you're doing church, then I don't think you're doing it right. And there are ways that we as a church need to continue to strive for this. Because God doesn't show favoritism. We need to guard ourselves against that. I was reading a really convicting book about the Apostle Paul who wrote that passage in Romans that there's no distinction. If he was to come today after spending his life writing the New Testament and spreading the gospel as far as he could into the world, if Paul was to pop into uh, the U.S. in 2020, the thing that would surprise him the most about the church is there are all these distinctions and denominations. Some church names are like eight words long. And we don't really care. And I'm not just talking about like churches out there. There's a church across the street from us that's a different denomination. And I know their pastor, he's a nice guy. But in my years of ministry, I've never made any real effort to find some way to just reach across the street. So I put myself in this as well. That Paul would look at our religious society today and think, there's all of these denominations. This isn't what I started. And you guys just don't really care. And we understand that the message of the gospel isn't Church of Christ people only accepted here or Presbyterian people only accepted here. The message of the gospel is there is no difference. When is it we started showing favoritism and thinking that it just wasn't that big of a deal? There is no difference. All have fallen short of the glory of God, so that means all are welcome. All deserve a seat of honor around your table. As we close in worship this morning, before we take communion, we're going to sing a very powerful song that I've come to love, um, O Come to the Altar. The song, O Come to the Altar, reminds us of the fact that we need to come again and again around the altar of grace to remember that this is what fuels us. May we not hate watch the world. Be motivated by the humiliating statement that yes, I need the grace of God every single day. It is a humiliating, it's a humbling thing to say, but ultimately it leads us to freedom. The Father's arms are open wide. And that's good news for us, and it's also good news for people who've sinned against us. May we recognize that we need this humbling experience so that we cannot show favoritism and recognize that, yes, there is no difference because we've all fallen short. May we try to be a place that James envisions, that Jesus calls us to, where someone who is homeless has incredible worth and value, just as someone who is incredibly wealthy has incredible worth and value. Because the weight we place on their value isn't the things of this world. The weight is because of who Jesus is and what God has done for us.
May we recognize that every single day we need to come to the altar and recognize that the Father's arms are open wide for us and them. May we live into this reality that James calls us to.